Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talk with Steve Grant. This is one of the more important conversations and kind of, you know, one of the reasons I started the podcast was to raise awareness for addiction and mental health. And in this conversation, me and Steve talk about his two sons, Chris and Kelly. They both passed away uh, from addiction and drug overdose. And he talks about their story, um, how they got to where they ended up dying from addiction and drugs that we talk about the impact it had on him and his family and the book he wrote and really how it got to be his calling or his mission in life to hopefully raise awareness and funds or do whatever he can to help people going through something similar families or individuals um, going through you know something similar that he he went through so him and his family did um, before we get into the conversation, Engineered Sleep, as y'all have heard before, Engineered Sleep is an amazing partner of mine. They're a mattress manufacturer based out of Greenville, South Carolina. If you use promo code LIVE10, you'll get 10% off your order. And Engineered Sleep has manufactured mattresses for celebrities, for athletes. Um, they can customize mattresses. They can make epic mattresses for NBA superstars or celebrities or whoever wants a big mattress. But if you're somebody like myself that just needs a king or queen mattress, um, they will hook you up with the highest quality mattress possible, perfect for you. And most importantly, you're going to start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. So use promo code LIVE10 and you'll get 10% off your order. Go to their website at engineeredsleep.com or go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. Or just give them a call. Make sure to mention the podcast to get 10% off your order. Um, without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Grant. Make sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That'd be much appreciated. So without further ado, Steve Grant. Steve, thank you for coming over. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited about the conversation. And uh, we were just talking about mental illness and how some of these things aren't getting the recognition as they probably need. Um, but someone for like you, you know all too well about a good bit of this stuff. So I want to start with really your son's stories, and then we can get into hopefully more educational things for people. But tell me about Chris and Kelly and their childhood and, and that sure, sort of stuff. Sure, sure. But first of all, thanks, Sam, for having me. Uh, I had two sons, uh, Chris and Kelly Grant. And uh, they both uh, born in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, we lived here. And uh, I was working, and uh, one of one of the sons was uh, starting nursery school. And uh, uh, they asked him if uh, they called us one day and said, "You need to come over here. Uh, we'd like him to repeat fourth grade, and or fifth grade, excuse me, fifth grade. And we also want him to go on Ridlin." And, you know, of course, at that time, mm -hmm. parents, you know, when the, the stigma of being left back, you know, when, yeah. in my time was like devastating. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we approached Christopher and said, hey, Mrs. Todd loves you so much that she wants you back next year. And he said, well, is so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so going to be here? And, I, and we said, no. And I looked at my wife. I said, well, now it's your turn. And as, as things happened, you know, we prayed about it. And sure enough, uh, an opening opened up at Christ Church Episcopal. And uh, he was able to go over there. And, and it was a much smoother transition when he, when he saw some of his friends over there that had gone from Westminster to there. Got it. So, so 
but but the point of the matter, the point of it was at that time, and one of the things that CRISPR evolved to was he needed a drug for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was started with Ritalin and it started with Adderall and it was innocently prescribed by physi- but very good physicians. Um, but he had a he had that little button inside of them that you know was telling him that there's got to be a pill for everything. It's a fix, yeah. Yeah, it is, and it was. It's amazing how at, at that age he it was already there. Mm-hmm. We used to drive in the car, and Kelly and Chris used to say uh, they talk about something. I say, you know, guys, you're gonna like something one day. Uh, you really are, because that's my family. You're gonna like something someday, and oh, how true how true it was. And then, but uh, they both have two different stories. Uh, uh, with the same outcome, unfortunately. Uh, so, so Chris was a very, very good athlete. Um, was the only freshman on the varsity basketball team, freshman on the soccer team. Um, he, you know, he excelled there. Uh, he was not a great student. He was uh, what I've always found with the people I've helped that have had um, that have had uh, uh, sons or daughters with addiction. They're actually pretty intelligent. Mm-hmm. And Christopher was actually pretty intelligent, but he just uh, uh, he he just was unfocused, um, and and um, so so about ninth grade he started to uh, show behavior that was a little bit different, and um, we were uh, you know I was I was trying to talk to him one day about something, and um, he um, he came downstairs one night and he said, Dad, you're my only friend in this world. And he was very popular. Again, he was on all the teams, mm-hmm. all the girls. I mean, girls all the time, you know, boys. And uh, I said, hmm. And I knew enough from my work with the mental illness, and I helped start the suicide crisis hotline in Greenville. And before I knew, this. I, yeah, before this. And I knew the discussion, uh, or well, what you really kind of try to listen for. And um, I said, you know, to myself, I said, Chris, you know, uh, I'm really flattered that I'm your best friend, but... You know, my dad was not my best friend when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, I mean, I love my dad, but I, I had other best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I shouldn't be your best friend, but I'm flattered. Now, I, I did I did say to him um, that I don't, um, you know, it, he left, and and uh, but it really stuck with me. Mm-hmm, and sure. So about a week later, the same thing happened. I'm sitting downstairs reading in the den, and he comes downstairs before he goes to bed, and he says, Dad, I don't want to be an F up. And this is when he was 13 or 14? Yeah, I don't want to be an F-up. So I said, well, what do you mean? Why, why would you be an F-up? Yeah. And he couldn't tell me. He just couldn't say it. He didn't want to say, Dad, I'm drinking and I'm using drugs. Yeah. Um, so, and I had no idea what he was getting at, but I called up a pediatrician at the hospital who was a client of mine and good friend. He, he, uh, he was actually in charge of pediatricians. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like to see this psychiatrist in Greenville. I understand he's the best one in town. And he said, when do you want to see him? And I said, uh, when, when can I see him? He said, well, he's probably six months out. I said, no, no, no. I don't have six minutes, yeah, I don't no. think. And so uh, he, we were able to go see this guy the next day at lunch. And he met with him and uh, met with him for an hour. And uh, he, you know, came out. And of course, it's private between my son and, and him. And he said, um, your son's life is being controlled by drugs and alcohol. Wow. And I went, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that started it. And that basically started eight years of rehabs, five rehabs, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, dealing with police, dealing with everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where 
when I started this, I st- when, he, when I heard about this, I started reading about what happens to a family mm-hmm. when you have a son or a daughter, a child who is addicted to drugs and alcohol. And I remember reading all these things. You're going to get divorced. You're going to have financial problems. You're going to have a, another son who's going to dis- you know you're going to neglect. You're going to mm-hmm. you're going to do all these things. And I said, oh no, this happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to put him in that 28 day program, and we're going to rock on. Yeah, you know, he's going to be back on the field. You know, <laughs> and and you know how wrong I was. Uh, and and almost all those things occurred. Uh, I went through divorce. I had financial issues. My other son, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, uh, was very different from him, but he was being neglected otherwise. You know, and and uh, so so a lot of these things occurred. And, and ultimately, um, you know, Christopher dies uh, in our house of a uh, cocaine and methadone overdose. And um, and you know, it was funny. It almost was a I hate saying relief as a parent. And this was eight years, kind of. This was eight years. Yeah, this is he. He died at twenty-one, and he started about fourteen, thirteen and a half, somewhere mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. And he died in October of two thousand and five. And at the time, I didn't know anyone who died of a drug overdose. Yeah, no, I just didn't. And There's I was less heard of. Then. And I'm not under a rock here in town, so I just didn't know about it. Unless someone had, you know, you know, sometimes back then people. I was always pretty open about what was going on. In fact, he came back from his first rehab, and we went to church on Sunday. One of the things we only, one of the only things we really did consistent in parenting was we went to church every Sunday. Uh, it was my it was my the boy's mother's demand, and uh, we were both the same religion, so we 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 agreed on it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was easy. But they knew no matter how bad Christopher was, you know, on a Sunday morning, he was in that car. And um, he had come, just come back from his first rehab. Looked fantastic. He was our son again. Um, he went through one in Tennessee. Got it. And um, he's in church, and a guy came up to him, and uh, a friend of mine, and he said, "Hey, Christopher, how you doing?" He said, "He said I'm doing great. I'm doing great." He said, well, "What's been going on? Are you playing sports?" And he said, uh, "No, I'm in rehab right now." And he said, "Like for what? Your knee? Your back?" Mm-hmm. And uh, Christopher said, "No, for drugs and alcohol." Now, you know, a lot of people don't do that. No. You know, a, lot of, they, a lot of people hide it. You know, but Christopher, if you asked him at Christ Church, if, if, the, if the principal or the, or the student, whatever, if I asked him, they always went to him to find out what went down. Because mm-hmm. one, they thought maybe he was involved. <laughs> and two, if he wasn't involved, he probably knew who was involved. Yeah. And eventually they'd squeeze it out of him. Because that's the way it was. It was amazing how he could always be doing this, but be impeccably honest, mm-hmm. uh, especially with me. Um, and now he got a little less honest <laughs> over time as things got a little more serious for him. Um, have you, I'm sure you have, have you, what is your thought of what he was going through mentally like in those years? Was it depression, anxiety? You know, what was probably yeah. the root of the call for the use? That's, that's a great question, Sam. Uh, Christopher had a problem with social anxiety. Um, he had to be a little hammered, we figured out, when he got to a social setting. Mm-hmm. So I would catch him uh, Friday night before he goes to the, the football game at Christ Church or at Greenville High School where mm-hmm. he evolved to eventually because he got kicked out of school there. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to be a little hammered. So we would uh, literally, and the games they play to do this are just incredible because um, I started looking up through the house. I looked under sofas. I find beer cans. I'd look over the fence line. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd see pizza, beer cans, you know, and I'm wondering, so I was really starting to become this detective yep. 
and um, and trying to figure out what's going on. But it became apparent that uh, one night he went to, before a football game, he went to a parent's house, uh, a friend of his house, and his father called me up about an hour later and said, hey, your son's drunk on the porch here. You need to come get him, right? So I went and got him, and we talked about it. Um, then the next, it, we used to say, Friday's coming. My wife and I used to say Friday's coming. Mm-hmm. And Friday's when, that was always when it, it got crazy. Yep. You know, I might as well have uh, handcuffed him to the bed like they do the werewolf, you know, because <laughs> it all came out. And, uh, and we tried to monitor as, as much as we could. Um, but one time I was in the driveway and I was, I was uh, getting ready to back out. And he said, Dad, hold on for one second. I forgot something upstairs. So I said, okay. So he dragged, he, I was out of the house. Everybody was out of the house. And he goes upstairs and uh, he, he uh, drinks, you know. Uh, he has to drink before he gets mm-hmm. back in that car again. And then he always drinking Gatorade, you know, afterwards. Yeah. You know? And it, never, it finally dawned on me that he was using the Gatorade so I wouldn't smell the alcohol on Yeah. It. And it was always funny how he always asked me in the beginning, Dad, have you ever drank gin? Dad, have you ever drank scotch, you know? And I'd say yes, but what I was what he was really getting at was that he had already drank that, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He wasn't asking. He's was almost like admitting that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it. that's what a lot of it is. They're they're saying it to you, but you don't you don't hear it because you're not used to. Yeah. Oh, you know, that's what I learned actually in the suicide training when I answered the phone for a couple of weeks when people would call in, you know, or you you try to listen for certain things um, that people say. Um, so so social anxiety was a big issue. Um, which also led to here's a kid who's got friends playing sports, the whole mm-hmm. nine yards. Um, he had he had social anxiety. Uh, he he probably looked in the mirror and saw somebody else instead of this good looking kid. He saw mm-hmm. somebody else in the mirror, and uh, he did suffer from depression. Uh, parents call me all the time, and um, you know sometimes it's just they have their son. They found marijuana in their son's pocket when they're doing the laundry. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll say, well, that's, you got to talk to him about that anyway. But in and of itself, that doesn't mean he's a drug addict or he's on his way to, you know, whatever. Um, I said, because I said, everyone's situation is unique, but the behavior of of kids who are alcohol, adolescents or young adults who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, some kind of substance, it's unique to their family and them, but it's, the behavior is very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the things they start to neglect, the things they start to avoid. Um, you know, and, and it, it's a classic thing. I, I listen to so many stories of people that were like Christopher who had a long term starting at a young age. Um, Sam, you know that um, there's, there's a great deal of indication. First thing I ask parents is what's the date of first use you think for your son or daughter? Yeah. And the earlier you start it is the tougher it is to lick it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just a, a proven fact. Uh, because it robs you of your adolescence, and uh, it, your brain development's not going to happen. Yeah, kills um, your brain. Kills your brain. So, so that you know, that of itself, and I, you know, I found him in the bedroom peacefully. You know, I passed away, and it's interesting. I I knew that day was coming. Yeah, and I was going to ask, what were the? Do you remember what his actions were like in the weeks leading up to that, or even the days? Yeah. It, well, yeah, we. He was actually in school, mm-hmm. going to going to uh, technical college in Greenville, and uh, he was very good in math, which I was terrible, and he's very good in math, and uh, so he was going. So I was proud of him, but I knew he was. I, I, this is five rehabs later, boarding school, 
uh, everything. And people ask me why I don't have grief sometimes. And I said, well, a lot of times grief is built on guilt. And I, we don't have any guilt. Mm-hmm. I left it on the field with, with Christopher. Yeah. And uh, because he was of an age where you could have done that. Kelly, when we talk about him, is a little bit different. Uh, but but um, I left it on the field with, with Chris. And, and um, uh, you know, he, he was very predictable. But one of the things he always did was he called me every day. And, but he slept a lot, too. So one day my dad came over and he was upstairs and he was sleeping like he usually does. But he didn't call me that day. And I was wondering what was going on. So I looked in on him and he was kind of gutturaling snoring, which he did snore a little bit. Well, what he was really doing was he was dying. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that. Um, Although there was some paraphernalia around, um, I didn't didn't see the outward signs of anything like that. And um, he was really dying. So the next day I got up and my father had gone home to Abbeville and he uh, and went in there and he was he was he had passed away. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very tragic. Um, and, uh, losing the sun, watching body bags, leave your house. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very tragic. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this to me on the phone when we first talked was 2005. It wasn't nearly as talked about as much as it is now. That's um, right. it's almost like, a is it a shame thing? You know, yeah. is it like a, you know, are you that sort of process in, in the head or within the family was, was Kelly living with y'all at this point? Yes. Yes. Now we had separated and Kelly was living with his mother. Uh, Kelly was going to the Catholic high school here in town. St. Mary's. Uh, we went to St. Mary's and then went to St. Joseph's mm-hmm. graduated from St. Joseph's then went to college of Charleston. And, um, well, first he went to Birmingham Southern and he was there for two years. Christopher had died. One of the things I regretted, I didn't realize how close friends Christopher and Kelly were. How many years apart were they? Two. And I was, I was, Christopher died at 21. Ultimately, at the end of the story, Chris Kelly dies at 24. Uh, but, but Kelly and he were very close friends. And I didn't realize that because I was trying to keep Kelly actually away from him mm-hmm. a little bit, you know? Yeah. Because the time, you know, it was just very dangerous. Um, and so, so, um, Kelly, Kelly went, Kelly's at Birmingham Southern. Christopher has passed away. We, we haven't come home. And I'm one of these guys, uh, Sam, that says, you know, look, let's, let's, uh, grieve, but let's, let's, let's get on with our life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and you don't know me well enough to know that's, that sounds cold, but it's really, I'm a very, you know, I cry every day yeah. uh, about this, um, to myself and, um, and think about it every day. But I, I regret, one of the things I do regret uh, if I had, did regret anything in this process was that I sent him back to Birmingham Southern literally two days later, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, that came back to haunt me because it came back in my face a couple of years later. Uh, but he did come back, transferred back, and went to College of Charleston. And um, it was at College of Charleston where he was in a band. And they actually did very, very well. They got a, they got assigned by Capitol Records. Uh, but, but the band is like uh, like golf tournaments, you know, it's hard to be the band, yeah. you know, and I was screaming that you need to finish college. Um, everybody else had dropped out in the group. Most of the people were from Greenville, actually, but in Charleston, mm-hmm. he knew two, one of them was from St. Mary's also. And so they were, they were good. And I went down there to the music farm in Charleston 
uh, one night to see him. And this drummer, which was Kelly, uh, I said, who is this? Because I had never heard him play. You know, I was an athlete too. So I was always kind of moving towards Christopher. Yeah. Like my dad moved towards me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and not that I neglected Kelly. I just didn't embrace, I didn't know anything about the music world. Yeah. And how it worked. Okay. Well, they were doing well. And uh, I couldn't figure out who this kid was. And they got invited to South by Southwest. Yeah. In, in, in wherever that is, in Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're driving all over the country. And I'm helping them with it, the financial. And I got, I'm buying the U-Haul and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And they're going all over the place. And they go to South by Southwest. And there was an article in the paper that said, we're not sure where this band's going, but this drummer's going places. Wow. And it was really amazing because it was self-taught. And it was really interesting. And he loved it. You know, he lived for it. He loved it. And um, so they come back from South by Southwest, though, and, and he passes out in the parking lot uh, in Charleston. Now, these guys are living places. Uh, they're sleeping in the car, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, all over the country. And, and they get back to Charleston, and he, he uh, purportedly uh, passed out in the parking lot, right? So I, I didn't know that happened. And, I was about to say, how did, how did you... Yeah. How did... Somebody find him there? Yeah, well, so so that happened, and I didn't know anything about that. He didn't tell me a word about that, and we talked all the time, and we were close. And I, you know, I would go down and visit him in Charleston. But um, what I, I, one June day, um, the band called me, and they said, "Hey, Mr. Grant, the, that was not a, a um, he didn't pass out back in March." It was a drug overdose. Wow. A heroin overdose. And I remember that morning like it was yesterday. And I said, Lord, please don't let me know. Don't do this to me again. You mm-hmm. know? And I drove to Charleston. And I got him. He didn't like it. And we had some kind of argument on the way home. And that was when he said, you should have never sent me back to Birmingham Southern. You should have never. Yeah, yeah. You know, mom was terrible. You know, the, uh, he was, this little quiet kid was all of a sudden... You know, and the other thing I couldn't believe, and to this day I don't believe it, he was afraid of his shadow, and here he was putting a needle in his arm, mm-hmm. and he didn't, he wasn't like, I mean, you, it's horrible to say he was normal, okay? The problem is I say, you know, eighteen year olds, nineteen year olds, twenty year olds, sixteen year olds have a beer every so often, or they're smoking marijuana, yeah, and and I hate when people categorize that as normal, yeah, a kid growing up, you know what I'm saying? But but he, you know, did a little bit of that stuff, but that was not important to him, and all of a sudden, and I've had people tell me this that were in the band. It was amazing how he found something he liked, mm-hmm. and he went straight to it, and it went straight to where somebody had to first put a needle in his arm, and then then it happened. So back up to when I found out, I went down and got him. He came back, and I said, look, and it was the end of school year, and so he stayed with me all summer. I drug tested him at least 20 times, and heroin goes through you pretty fast, so um, I'm fairly certain he wasn't using. Um, now, he was on a prescription for some kind of uh, psychotropic drug, uh, but, and I'm sure he was uh, smoking marijuana and things like that, but, but he was not using heroin. And, and the deal was you can go back to Char- Charleston in September, but if, you, if I found out from the band that you're using again, mm-hmm. then you're going to rehab. Now, keep in mind, Chris, you know, a 13, 14-year-old goes kicking and screaming to rehab. Uh, a 21 year old has to go, yeah, on but they can, they can walk out. Mm-hmm. So I had them all prepared to go to a facility in North Carolina. And what he, was the facility? The, the pavilion. Okay. 
And uh, I was all prepared to send them there because I, you know, I, the, the, the psychiatrist that we've had now for years said yeah. he can't, he can't quit heroin on his own, Steve. So, so um, the band called, said, look, he's using heroin again. So I went down and got him and brought him back. And um, it was uh, October of 2010. And we uh, got him a place to stay off Augusta Road, um, nice little house, and he loved it. He was there for a little while, and uh, we talk every night. And on Sundays, we'd watch Mad Men together at his place. <laughs> and he was not using. Um, now he was doing other things, but he was not using. I'd see these little aluminum tubes, and I didn't know what they were. That was that gas that that yep. huffed, I guess, is what they call it. Oh, I, yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. realize what those things were. You know, I knew he wasn't baking cakes and doing, yeah, yeah. you know, putting icing on cakes either. So um, I knew it was something, but it wasn't heroin. Uh, so uh, um, we would do that. Well, one day I was out and it was a Saturday and I started calling him. And it's unusual. It's not unusual that he didn't pick up the phone. What was unusual was he didn't call me right back. And I was starting to get a little worried. And so I was up in Greer and I said to my friend who I was with, you know, I'm going to drive down to down to Kelly's place. It's unusual that I could call all day long and not. I was trying to find out what his foot size was because it was around Christmas and I was going to buy him some shoes. And he, um, I got there, his car is in the driveway and I'm already saying, whoa, oh, you know. Yeah. And I get to the door and I realize the door has been latched from the inside. So he's in there. Yep. You know. Uh, I went in the yard. I, 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 I got a brick in the yard and I broke the window down and uh i reached in and opened the door and got in and i walked around and and um you know there he was on the dining room floor with a needle in his arm and a, a band wrapped around it and vomit coming out of his mouth and lying there very peacefully and you know obviously it was it was just very devastating mm -hmm. and and uh, of course that that really rocked my world when that happened to him and um, what had happened was he called a friend that night and he said, I'm feeling a little jonesy. Do you know where I can get some Suboxone? Mm -hmm. Which tells me he was trying. Yeah. The coroner said that he had one needle mark in his body. It was not an intravenous drug user. Yeah. So he was trying to do it himself and he was stubborn. Um, but somebody from Charleston sent him heroin through the mail. And it stayed in his cabinet for quite some time. We found the we found the mail order thing at the at, when he, after he had died, and we had to clean out his place. And he could he, he called a friend and asked that because he wanted to use that heroin that was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I actually saw this girl yesterday. Yeah, this girl was she, he knew her since she was five years old. She said, "I don't know what Suboxone is, Kelly. What are you talking about?" And he. Not, he didn't want everybody to know he was a heroin user. Yeah, sure. Unlike his brother, he didn't want anybody to know. I knew and a few other people knew. Uh, it took a while for his mother to find out about it, really. Um, uh, but he, um, but, but I, I, you know, he, he used it. It was, uh, and they say when, when you stop using heroin for a period of time, you don't go back to start. You go back to where you left off. Yeah. And evidently, his friends told me that he was very tolerant of it, you know. Yep. And he went back to that, and uh, That's what, it, yeah. it, it killed him. Yeah, and and so his tolerance uh, had gone away. His tolerance had gone away, and and uh, but you know, had he called me and said, "Hey, Dad, I'm feeling a little Jonesy. 
uh, I, the, I don't know what I didn't know what Jonesy meant. I do now. Yeah. But but I said I didn't know what Suboxone was, um, and so I would have helped him. Uh, but you know that's um, that's um, that was that's that's sort of the story. And so it happened much. I would say much quicker with Kelly. Eight months. Eight months. Eight months. It was an eight month ordeal, and uh, it, and it just a tragic story. It, obviously, because it's unusual because it's your only two children. Mm -hmm. um, we, I've heard about two peop, two kids and families passing away, and, uh, and maybe it was drug related, but it was a car accident, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And but um, it, but it, it has happened, but it's somewhat of a unique story. And uh, um, so afterwards, um, I don't know if you want to get into this, but we, you know, I, you know, I, I grieved, but I went to work. And a few weeks later, um, a fellow in the office said to me, Steve, there's these two motivational speakers coming from St. Louis mm -hmm. who were just starting out, John Newman, uh, Ben Newman and John O'Leary. And um, both of them are worldwide um, speakers today. Yeah, then this is where I was going to go. With yeah, this is this is just starting out, and and so they're there. I, last thing I want to do, I'm thinking that they're there to help me uh, sell more insurance and be a better business person, right? And he just said, well, "I'd like you to be there because I need a little gray hair." And <laughs> and you know, this was two or three weeks after Kelly had died, and so the last thing I was thinking about was was helping people. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though that's my that's my motto, but I I just don't know if they were if I was wasn't challenged that day, I don't think um, I don't know if things would have happened the way they've happened and and the number of people I've helped and yeah in the like years that. since but because when they started this and right away they said we're not here to help you with um, <laughs> how you can be better salesman we're here to ask you what your legacy is going to be and we want to ask you that today. And then after this three-day boot camp, we're going to ask you what your legacy is going to be again. Right? And so I'm sitting there going, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, and I've never had this. I never really thought about what, what Steve Grant's legacy was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so they actually went around the room. as a horseshoe. And, of course, I usually want to, want to be the one in the back. <laughs> you know, so I was at the top of the horseshoe. And they got to me. And I stood up and I said, I want to help as many people as I can uh, uh adolescents and young adults who struggle with addiction, substance abuse, and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know where it happened. I wasn't thinking about it. You know, it wasn't in the car. I wasn't rehearsing it. I just said it, you know, and I had this epiphany. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I know that's what it was. And, and they said, why, why would you do that, Steve? Because they didn't know my story. And that really nobody in that room knew it, actually, because they weren't from Greenville, a lot of them. And... Um, I said, because I just lost my second son to a drug overdose, and I lost my first son, um, you know, five years ago. And they couldn't believe it. You know, it was dropped dead silent, yeah. you know. So that's where it really started. And I kind of drew a line in the sand that day. And I got with the Community Foundation here in Greenville. Uh, they didn't have this under their umbrella of funds. Um, so I started Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation. And we're seven or eight years old now. March of 2012, so we had our 10th year anniversary, and have raised a little south of a million dollars. I do it very part time, mm -hmm. and um, um, we we give money out every day, uh, and typically it's to non for profits. We started out; we didn't want to help individuals because individuals are expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, did I, but I didn't realize there were these non profit um, facilities, like uh, like any length recovery in Sumter or. Uh, the beach beach house in Sunset Beach, North Carolina, yeah. 
where you can spend a thousand dollars and help somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, I was I was approached about doing that because Nikki Haley had taken out away the voucher uh, for mental health to send people to rehab because a lot of people go into the mental health centers for help, and after they're vetted, they say you don't have mental you don't have mental <laughs> health issue. You're a drunk or you're an addict, right? And we got this thousand dollar voucher, and you're going to go over here to to any length recovery uh, or to Beach House or to somebody, right? Well, when Nikki Haley, when all the cuts came in 2008, 2009, um, and then later on, she took the voucher away. And so funny how things happen. The guy who led the, um, who was the head of the mental health department in Myrtle Beach called me. He was the father of a girl that Kelly went to St. Joseph's with, who's now a doctor in New Haven. And he said, Steve, I'm so-and-so, told me about this voucher and everything like that. He said, can you give us $1,000 to help this person? You know, go to any length recovery in Sumter. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, because uh, he said, you know, Steve, the people that we're dealing with, these people have tried six, seven times in their life, and they just can't do it. And by yeah. this time, they're broke. Their family's tired of them. Yeah. Their friends are tired of them. They've scratched all the plastic they can yeah. scratch. And then, and I said to myself, you know, I don't want to let a thousand dollars be a difference between someone trying again. Very true. And so I've done that probably fifty times with different people. Uh, a women's facility, you know, one of the things that sidelines we have terrible facilities for women, not enough of them. Um, but the women's facility and several of them in our state and some on other parts of the country. Um, but I get some. Sometimes I get good letters, and, um, and some of them have pretty good batting averages. These places, you don't have to go someplace where you spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand yeah. dollars a month. Uh, you know, if you're willing to work. And you said, I mean, like you said, though, everybody's story is unique. Yeah. Um, but what I've found is there are, you know, some similarities, and oh, I think yeah. a lot of connection is that mental health and addiction. Yeah. Um, from what you've seen, what are those connections through mental health and addiction? Well, that and that's a good question. And when parents do call, they kind of say, you know, I think they're just, I think they're depressed. Mm-hmm. And and um, what do you think, Steve? And I said, well, I, you know, I, uh, you'd have to give me a little bit more idea about his behavior. And I'm certainly not a clinician. I'm a parent, just like you are. Um, but but um, and I, 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 I became to believe and I think it's true that there is a there is depression in everyone who's addicted. Yeah. And has substitutes. I, I really think they has to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know there was for my son, Christopher, and I know there was for my son, Kelly. He was very depressed that his parents had gotten divorced. He was very depressed that his brother had passed mm-hmm. away. Uh, and um, and and he was under the care of a psychiatrist in Charleston. But uh, but but. There is this depression because uh, I really think that one, they're intelligent, typically, and two, uh, they don't they don't like what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? I don't really think they like what they're doing. And there is, you mentioned it, I think, to Chris and maybe even Kelly, like it's the imposter syndrome. It's like they don't they look yeah. in the mirror and they don't see, you know, yeah. you're Chris. He's good on the football field. He's good on the yeah. soccer field. He's doing these really yeah. good things, but he doesn't see that no. in himself. He almost looks at himself like. I don't know how I'm here. Like, I'm not that good. Or right. something yeah, he just, he just, I always said he saw somebody else when he looked in the mirror. And it was a shame because he, you know, and um, again, we, we gave that all. Uh, but there was always a, a drug on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. One night he played in Anderson. Uh, he was uh, still at Christ, still, still in high school here. Um, he scored like three goals in Anderson. We played a great game. 
Next morning, he wakes up. Dad, my knee's killing me. I, I, I got to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So I took him over to a close friend of mine who I could just go in and see. And um, I, I, he, he, he fortunately knew enough to know that Chris was doing a little doctor shopping. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And he gets in the car, and I said, well, what did Dr. So-and-so Dr. say? Dad, he gave me mm -mm, Mobic. I said, Mobic? What does that mean, Mobic? Yeah. You know, uh, he said, he gave me Mobic. And I said, well, what, 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 what's Mobic? He said, this is like taking an aspirin. Uh -huh. You know, he wanted Something oxycodone. Stronger. He wanted, you know, um, he wanted Lorotabs. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, and I thought to myself, jeepers, I got a pharmacist on my hand now. <laughs> you know, and because he knew it. There was nothing wrong with his knee. Yeah. You know, and, you know, he was the kid that would go to the doctor and try to get pills for his friends. He was the kid who would walk from Chanticleer through the hospital system to a liquor store on Mills Avenue, use a fake ID, and but before and by the time the fake ID got to him, um, the guy knew him well enough. He didn't need the fake ID anymore. Yeah, he was just letting him buy the liquor, you know. And um, and and that's the other part of this whole thing that is really in, is interesting. When you're that age, you get conditioned. And that liquor store owner said, Christopher, if you tell your parents that I do this for you or anybody, I could lose this, this business. And I could, see this picture? I could lose my children and mm -hmm. I could lose my wife, you know? And he believed that. Because yeah. when I did my rudimentary intervention, when <laughs> I knew he was going to Tennessee, and I told him, this is, where, this is what's going down, Christopher. He said, Dad, I want you to make me one promise if I go. And I said, what's that, Christopher? You are going, by the way. And I said, uh, and he said, um, he said, I don't want you to do anything to that liquor store owner. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's because he believed this is really what was going yeah. to happen. And it was kind of pitiful. Um, the other thing he kind of thought was he was, he said, I want to be like you and my brother. My, my brother's a consummate art dealer in this world and great <laughs> salesman, twin brother. And he want, I said, I wanted to be like you and, and my uncle. I wanted, to, I wanted to sell, be great salesman. I said, yeah, Chris, but the problem is you're selling something that causing harm mm -hmm. and he really didn't grasp it he got this power of being able to fix somebody with something yeah and and, and you know it, it's very sad but yeah. you get conditioned you do get conditioned and that kid that age is easier for them oh, to get conditioned yeah. and we, we you talked about depression and using because it is that quick fix to the depression or the anxiety but the come down only heightens mm -hmm. a lot of times yep the depression and the anxiety, which I know will, is a, a Ferris wheel. You yeah. know, you can continue to go up and down, continue to go up and down through using depression, anxiety, using depression, anxiety. And, yeah. and that's the only that's the only thing I know for me or myself or a lot of people, I feel like, is like the relief yeah. from either that depression or anxiety. And it's hard for you to think there's something else that could give you that relief at that time. Well, the alcohol is a great antidepressant it is it just has terrible side effects yeah. <laughs> and it is and and uh that's that's my mother went through that uh, you know she never drank and then one day when i was at Furman, they called me and told me she was in a rehab facility in, in new jersey mm -hmm. and i said what and they said yeah she's been drinking at night when your dad's sleeping dang and uh we had lost my sister in a car accident she never got over it and she was she was drug she was medicating herself um is what happened 
and uh, she overcame it. But um, it's amazing how kind of it is the number one self medication. It, it is, and and you know, a couple of years after Kelly Christopher had died, I do tell this in the story. My my mother said, Steve, when you write this book, she wasn't around unfortunately to see it. But when you write this book, Steve, you're gonna have to tell him everything. Yeah. I said, I know what you're talking about, Mom. <laughs> and uh, so uh, my parents came over one time after, a couple of years after Kelly was in college. They got in the, in the, uh, in the garage, and there was this big, you know, one of those big plastic garbage cans full of, uh, full of gin Dang. bottles, empty gin bottles. And Mama said, Chris, uh, Steve, what are you doing? What are all these bottles here for? I said, well, they're mine. Don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. Yep. And so I was slowly going down that road. Yeah. And finally, I just kind of said one day, Steve, you, you've lost it here. Mm -hmm. So I checked myself in up in Greer for a couple of weeks. And I told everybody, I was told my Dave Ellison and some of my friends that are close to me, I called from Kelly in Birmingham mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to check out for a couple of weeks. Yep. I got there for a few days. I'm gonna, when I got there, they said, when's the last time you used? I said, what time is it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so, but I was there for like two days and the doctor said, you know, Steve, you're not a drunk or an alcoholic. You're very depressed yeah. and you're using you're something. With that. And it's amazing. I do say this in the book about how my mother went down this same track and then I'm go down, I'm starting to go down this same track also. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, and I, I do, you know, they always question whether alcoholism is hereditary. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I do believe there is uh, believe enough that evidence that, that it, it very well could be. Mm -hmm. I totally believe it. And, but it doesn't have to be either. No, it doesn't have to be. You know, if, nope. it, if it's an individual and it just clicks in their brain, because a lot of it is that brain science too, yep. you know, the way it affects yep. your brain. The team at Engineered Sleep is going to work with you to get the best mattress possible for you and your family to get the best night's sleep possible. Use promo code LIVE10 and you'll get 10% off your order. So go to their website, engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. Or you can give them a call, mention the podcast, or go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. But most importantly... Get yourself a mattress that fits you so you sleep better at night and have more energy and more production on a daily basis. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on for daily performance. So stop putting it on the back burner. Reach out to, to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. And now we're back to the conversation. What were some, in your book and when you're talking with families, what are some signs or what are some things you look you tell some of those parents of 12 year olds or, you know, 10 to 15, like to see yep. that might be signals are coming along. You, you know, the book has been characterized as something like a, a lesson book for a healthy family that has a 10 year old, 12 year old and a 14 year old. Mm -hmm. and, and it kind of tells you what you want to start looking at. You know, um, you see grades drop. Uh, you see, Christopher was supposed to be at his job, and he uh, all week long. I'm thinking he's over his job at the mall, and then when I go over there to check on him, he's, he said, "I hadn't seen him for a week. I hadn't seen him for a week. What do you mean?" Yeah. And so he's, you know, normally responsible. He's being irresponsible. Um, school, you know, not only just grades plummeting, but also he's at, he's um, he's missing an action sometimes at school half day. Um, so these behaviors are. You know, and, and you do see a change in disposition. There's part of this book that I look at him one day and he, he viewed me as his best. I was his best friend. Mm -hmm. and I viewed him as my best friend. 
And one day I said something to him that was very insulting to him. I said, Chris, I don't know who you are anymore. That's, yeah. And it shocked him when I said that. It really just kind of, I mean, we were outside and it just went, um, But, you know, you start to see things hidden. Um, you start seeing beer cans around and you start seeing um, the alcohol in your cabinet that might be a little bit lower than the last yeah. time you saw it. Um, so I really became, so we started, people, if they came over, um, they had to leave the book bags downstairs. And if so-and-so came over, I'm going to call their parents to let them know he's at our house. Well, you know what eventually happened? Nobody wanted to come to Steve's house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was off limits. Nobody wanted to go there. It was going to be bad, you know. So when you had that door open, uh, you couldn't get on the computer, um, all those kind of things. With your book, the, the titles Don't Forget Me, where did, where did you get the title? The title came, um, my mom, I think I told you that, we, she wasn't alive when the book was released. It takes a long time to release a book, by mm -hmm. the way. I never thought about that. <laughs> uh, and I won't, I won't do it again. Uh, but my mom was, uh, had uh, breast cancer and eventually killed her. But um, she took all her treatments here, so she was living with me for a period of time, and I was living up towards Thornblade, and um, I, she was using my room, and I, you know, so I went out, she was always drinking coffee, I won't get good coffee, and I, hey mom, there's some pictures in that box that are from years old you might want to look at. And she pulled out this picture, and when I got back, she said, Steve, you see this picture? And I said, yeah, it's, that's Christopher playing soccer at Christ Church. And she said, no, no, I know what that is. I know he's playing soccer at Christ Church. She said, you see the back of it? And I said, no. And he had terrible handwriting. And on the back of it, it said, don't forget me. Wow. In his handwriting. And I was like, whoa. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just like, what? I've never seen that before. She said, that is really, you know. And I said, you know, mom, that's a God thing. My yeah. mother was questioning where God was in her life and things like that. And I said, that's a God thing. And, you know, so I kept that picture. It's in my office. Um, and that's what we wrote. The, we figured the title was "Don't Forget Me," you know, or it was going to be "Dad, it's just it's just weed." Oh you know, yeah, that, I heard that, you say that. That was the old, you know, "Hey, Dad, it's just when they went, to, you know, they get to, they go to rehab and they start negotiating with you." <laughs> uh, you know, I won't smoke anymore, Dad, uh, but I want I do want to use marijuana. Yeah, you know, it, it was all this kind of thing, and it's that always worries me too. Yeah, it's a funny the progression. He, he, he hated us, then he loved us by the end. And, uh, and he was ready to be, buy into all this. Uh, so it is like turning around an elephant, um, and it's like reconditioning. So Christopher, I always say, Christopher, need to be rewired. Why do you, what was the why to begin with to write the book? That, that, and it, that's a great question, because someone said to me, Steve, you got to figure out what the why is. Mm -hmm. So I ended up um, hiring a, clin a clinician, an addictionologist, James Campbell, and I said, James, would you mind coming over here every Friday afternoon? And I'm going to tell you the story and you can write it down and you tell us why this occurs. Mm. Because this is for adolescents and young adults. Um, and he would tell me the why. And, you know, uh, but, well, you know, Christopher got Ridlin when he was six years old mm -hmm. and then he was given Adderall. And he, James said, well, here's why. And here's what, what could have occurred from that mm -hmm. at that early an age. So there's a lot of that in there. And, um, and that's what helped me because you're absolutely right. Because everybody kept saying, you got to tell us the why, Steve. you got to tell us the why. And I think that's why people, it's a tough book to read, especially if you're someone that's in recovery. And we do warn people that this may be a trigger for mm -hmm. you to read this book. Um, and it may be, you know, a lot of people that are 
um, that have great kids, they don't want to hear about how bad they could be <laughs> or how bad it could get, you know? And, and, and it's true, though. You know, this, uh, again, I didn't know anybody in 2005 who had died of a drug overdose. I didn't yeah. know anybody other than his brother in 2010 who had died of a drug overdose. And now I can tell you that I knew two people last week that died of drug overdoses. And it's, it's a big issue today. Um, and we're, I don't, we're not addressing it properly, probably. Um, and um, and uh, there's a lot going on that's uh, in this world um, and the synthetic drugs that they're making. And, and the, the, the problem today, too, is that you're, you're, people are dying that aren't addicts. And they aren't. Yeah, it's like first time user. It's a first time user. You know, kids, kids throw those pills into a hat at a party and they all pick one out one later on and they take one and boom. Yeah. It might be laced with fentanyl mm -hmm. and uh, it, your life's over. And you hear about that and it's terrible. That's what I was going to ask. Like, I know you're still pretty connected and you're helping out as much as you can. Where, what do you do? What are you seeing um, today? Is it fentanyl? Is it those no, I, I synthetic drugs or it, it's, it's a lot of it is fentanyl. A lot of it's fentanyl. And it's, uh, I've had this terrible habit all my life of reading the obituaries. Oof. You know, I, I do it every day. And I, I check it out, you know, and, uh, and, and, and unfortunately after my kids passed away, whenever you see, um, this 22 year old who died suddenly, right. They'll say died suddenly, you know? Yeah. And, I saw a football player did it last night. Yeah. That's, that's how Marion Barber probably died. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And you hear about these things. Um, and, uh, Toby Mack's son, he, who, you know, he, he kind of said, I know that's got to be a drug overdose. Right. And, and, and you sit there and I sit there and go, well, to my wife, I said, well, you know, Kathy, it's, this guy be either a drug overdose or a suicide, one or the other, mm -hmm. which obviously suicides are up uh, 30% this year. Um, and young, a lot of times alcohol and drugs and, and drugs, addiction yeah. leads to that. Yep. And, and 130,000 people died of some kind of overdose. And these are people that we know about. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a real problem. What about resources? You know, do you have... I mean, everybody's path is unique, right? Yeah. And we all have, you know, um, our own path is unique. And not every resource is going to work for everybody. Yeah. Um, but it's obviously better doing something than nothing. Yeah. Um, what do you usually tell family or, or brothers, sisters that see people that need help? Fortunately, I've, I've met a lot of people along the way, um, like yourself. And I've met a lot of people who have knowledge of places that go because things change and mm -hmm. and a lot of these places go out of business and some come in business yeah. the, the drug industry or the treatment industry is a multi-billion dollar business and unfortunately it's like any other thing when there's money uh, it, 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 you got to be very careful I used to I visited like a guy visits a college with his parents I visited the rehab facilities for, <laughs> for Christopher which was unheard of I mean I had a guy tell me one time said why are you here I said, well, I just want to see what it's about. He said, yeah. no, no one comes to visit a rehab facility, <laughs> you know? And I said, well, I said, you know, I, I care about this. I got to figure out, you know. So so it was a little unusual, uh, but there are the, the resources. I thought I was an island to myself when I first happened. One, because I never knew anybody who had a problem, because I, I would have asked them uh, what they did. Um, and 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 uh, But now today, after doing all this work and, we give a lot of money to favor to any uh, to the family effect here in Greenville. Um, we you hear about these programs 
and you, you kind of know what direction to take. And at least at a minimum, I know who I can call to say, so-and-so is going to call you their daughter needs help mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, needs some direction. And I do, I've done that a lot. Yeah. And so, cause it, so, uh, and I do tell them up front, the resources have changed, but there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. I wouldn't say there's a lot for girls. That's always a struggle. I get a phone call about a girl a place and I have to really kind of dig deep and call some people and figure it out. Very true. And I, I'm, yep. I had to help. You're right. Females is, is definitely more difficult cause there's more male facilities. Yeah. Um, which I don't, you know, I don't know if the numbers add up if there's more males or females. The, 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 the in, in the adolescent world, it's mostly boys, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. They say girls, it's mostly depression. Probably through social media and and Any community kind, yeah. groups, like yeah. all that sort of like pressure that they put on themselves. And but you mentioned it earlier, and it was something that I heard you say was 2011. Kelly had just passed away and you go to this seminar or, you know, mm-hmm. um, conference where you have two yeah. speakers and they ask you about your legacy. And now we're 10 years since then, 12 years since then. Is that what you still feel about your legacy? Is that how you still Absolutely. are striving on a daily basis? Absolutely. I, I don't know if you, there was an article about me in the, uh, the journal oh, this yes. past week yep. and I was so I was so flattered that one of the young men that I was able to help um, stepped up to the plate, which, you know, was part of, it's probably part of that process. Because I remember going in, his mother, please don't tell anybody he's going to rehab. Yeah. I, I'm not going to tell anybody. And, and he was the same way. Don't tell anybody I'm here, Steve. You know, he went for 13 months. He's doing fantastic. And I called him and said, would you do this? And they, you know, you don't have to use your name if you don't want to. Yeah. He used his name. You know, and uh, I think that takes a lot. Yeah, it uh, does. Because you're just saying, hey, look. But, you know, it's like any other illness. You know, you're not afraid to tell people you are uh, just found out you're a juvenile diabetic or mm-hmm. you're an adult onset diabetic or you've got cancer. Well, this is this is the same thing. And it's a lifetime struggle, even though you think you've licked it. Um, yeah. It's, every, it's an everyday battle. It, I think for a lot of people, it never really goes away. Yeah. It's always there. You just find different ways to cope with it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do believe that's the way my legacy will, will go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very happy. Um, they did some testimonials on our, our website. Uh, I've read those, yeah. The, the, the two guys now who are they are truly giants in the, uh, in the motivational speaking world. <laughs> uh, it's really kind of amazing how, how, how well they've done. And, and it's nice that I can go back to them and say, look, you know, you, you guys are to blame for all this. You know? <laughs> But they're really, they're really the, they're really the ones who I've been able to, mm-hmm. the cause of the reason I helped the people, because uh, I don't know if I would have done that, yeah, had I not been pressed to ask ask that question. At that moment in your no, life, yeah, a couple first, weeks after, yeah, there's no way I was thinking about that, and yeah. I know after after Christopher died, I wasn't thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, with with resources, as we're starting to wrap up, if somebody is a family somebody knows somebody that needs help or needs some resources what's a good resource for them to go to directly if you have any you know in greenville um it would definitely be uh favor mm-hmm. faces and voices of recovery which is a which is a um it's sort of a franchise of, of a program that started in san francisco there's one in anderson there's one in spartanburg now there's favor low country in charleston 
they do a good job. Uh, that, that's a place where you can go and say, I think I've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Or I think my son or, da- son or daughter has a problem. Uh, this is, and then when they have the problem, it's also that, well, we can go over here. Uh, you can go here. You can go here and here treat it. And then you have aftercare. You go there, visit, you know. Yeah. Uh, the young man I'm talking about in the article would go, um, would go there every afternoon. Yeah. And visit them, and, and, and it was part of the it was part of the his habit to, to stay clean. It is. It's part of the recovery. It, it, it's the recovery, and and uh, so those kind of programs are kind of you know soup to nuts, and and um, and we, we're happy that we've been able to help a lot of programs who do all those things, including the science of addiction, like yes, you sir. talked about. And there is a Duke a guy at Duke University, Jeff Georgia, who studies the adolescent brain. And it says it says uh, it does show the deterioration in the adolescent mm-hmm. brain uh, for using drugs, and um, so we help the White Horse Academy out by Furman. Uh, we help uh, um, um, shoot the other program that that the Family Effect does for for women with children who are less than five years old. Gotcha. Yeah. What what's is your book everywhere? Can people get it everywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mostly people get it on Amazon, uh, but it's but it's in the bookstores. Yeah, and and uh, it's it's not for everyone. Yeah, but but, uh, uh, but I've had very few criticism of it. Uh, but uh, it is a little it's a little rough. Yeah, and but it's very very honest. Yeah, you, you, that's honestly a lot of times in these situations that's what you need. Yeah, and first of all, I want to thank you for coming over. And coming on, I think these conversations, we need more and more of them to help educate anybody and everybody. And I kind of want to leave it, leave you with the last statement or last piece of the conversation is what you would say to a family or someone out there that might be struggling or might need some help or someone not sure what to do with their kids. Like what's maybe your message of hope or something along those lines? Well, there is hope. There, there is hope. And... Um, no matter how bad that situation is. And uh, I do talk to people. I may have started a conversation with six years ago, and they still trying mm-hmm. to help their son or their daughter. And it eventually will work uh, if you keep working at it. Uh, I would tell that you, you have to be honest with yourself. Parents have to be honest with themselves. Parents can't feel ashamed. This is, they, they didn't fail their kids mm-hmm. um, like a lot of parents feel. Uh, so there is hope and that, that, that you should cry out to somebody and and uh, and, and there's because there's plenty of hope out there plenty of help out there for this you're right whether and you can afford it or not yeah and you got it you got to start somewhere yeah well Steve this has been a pleasure Sam thanks for having me thank you for coming on and uh, I can't wait to see what you continue to do and hopefully me and you combined and if more and more people get involved in this we can maybe start helping turn the corner Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.